0: Welcome to the healing Center Conversations podcast, where we create space for conversations that heal. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, a nationally certified school psychologist. I, along with our special guests, will give you insight to promote collective healing by putting people first. Through weekly conversations with educators, psychologists, and healers, we'll discuss ways to heal, thrive, and live your best life. This is the Healing Center Conversations Podcast. Welcome to the Healing Center Conversations Podcast, where we create space that heals. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, and today we have a very special guest, Madison Payton. Madison Payton is an educator at a Title I school based in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Madison is also an Ed Policy EDD candidate at NYU. He's a CRE curriculum guru and a co-host of the Race Through Education podcast. Madison, welcome to the healing Center Conversations podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. This is phenomenal work that you're doing. Likewise, likewise. That's why I wanted to make sure that we got to have a conversation about some of the awesome things that you have going on. And before we hear about some of the the great work that you're doing, who is Madison Payton? Well, this is a very
1: funny question, a very interesting question to ask, because I've actually been thinking about who am I besides being an educator? I think sometimes we are so defined by what we do. That we forget about who we actually are. Um, and I don't mean to go, go in that direction, but I think that Madison Payne is a person that is someone who cares about the next person to the left and the right and the front and the back. Madison Payne is someone who is very passionate about learning. Learning is extremely important. Madison Payne is, is definitely, I think I was born to be an educator.
0: I'm really interested to hear your story of how you became. A teacher—is it something that you just fell into, or was this always a, a dream of, of Madison's? You know, my mom always said to me when I was little, she was like, "You're so
1: stubborn. You ask so many questions. You you're gonna be an educator. Like, there's just no other way. Like, I can't imagine you doing anything else." And I think that that stuck with me throughout my schooling. I think once I got to middle school, it was really good until high school became high school, and I started realizing. We started getting a lot of teachers that didn't look like us. We had a lot of programs that were coming in that was, you know, teachers that were there for only two or three years. I started realizing that teachers were not there for me. They didn't look like me. I hated literature. Ironically, everything was white literature. Nothing really stuck. I had teachers that would just say that they were there for a check. Teachers that were just, they they really didn't care. They would just sit in the front and they'd be like, if you want to learn, you learn. If you don't, you don't. And while that might be true for some, I think that it's a terrible approach when you have kids who really need a very heel centered approach to learning since at the time we didn't have the language. But, you know, PTSD is real. Like we all had a lot of issues. And I was fortunate to like not to have a two parent household, to not live in the projects and other areas where are are definers of or not definers, but they are indicators of someone that may or may not. Um, be as successful as we would like them to be because of all of the environment and and all of that. But nonetheless, I still had to experience that. And I think that I became very resistant. I got in a lot of trouble. I got a lot of teachers in trouble. I assisted in helping my assistant principal become no longer working there. So you know, I got involved in the student government. So I really was upset. It was a lot of rage that I had in high school, saying. I just can't believe there's so many adults that don't care about black kids. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that when I was a senior, as I was leaving the school, the dean of students just kept suspending everybody, which goes into like the research that I'm doing now. He basically was just like, if you looked at him wrong, if you like didn't do your homework, like they were finding so many ways to like keep kids out of school. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like I feel and I didn't have the vocabulary and stuff, but. I would just say I feel like this just goes against what school is like I don't understand why my best friend just kept getting in so much trouble. And like, why do black boys keep getting in trouble? And I just kept asking myself that question. So I went to a PWI thinking I could find answers through white people, uh, ironically, and I didn't. And it was a terrible experience. And I would. Where'd you go? I went to a small liberal arts college, DePaul University, and I have no shame in, in shouting them out in Greencastle, Indiana. The very small liberal arts college is about 2,600 students, very white, very red, very racist. I think that I had more trauma from racism. That was the first environment where I was called the N word, not by a student, but by the community. I really had to question my identity. I wasn't black enough they thought that a lot of students thought that I was part of a program called Posse, which is a phenomenal program, but Posse is a a program that focuses on bringing inner city kids to predominantly white institutions and giving them support and uh, resources and then making them into leaders at that particular school to disrupt change. And it was a great program, but because I was a person of color, the white kids were like, oh, you're Posse. You didn't get here through any other way. Like you got here through Posse, that's a long story to say that I got out of college. I didn't do teaching right away because I, I was rejected from a teaching prep program, and that completely derailed me.
0: Yeah. Just backing up a little bit, what was your major coming out of your undergrad program? Yeah, so it was uh, English Literature and Urban Education. Okay, okay. So you went in with this education focus. Uh, right. You're like, uh, from where's the, the, the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, you had this academic focus. But then the life experience that you received while you were there also gave you a a real life experience of what's happening and what you wanted to do, it sounds like, too. Right. Yep. Yeah. And and the urban education program was I I had the most amazing
1: doctor. Patricia Sellers was a white woman who was a math educator. And she was the first person to introduce me to the word equity. I was a freshman I sat in her classes. She was just this like, I still talk to her to this day, like she's on Facebook, she's wonderful. And she would tell me, this school is not great, Madison. I'm glad that you're here, you're doing amazing work. She was like, she's a white woman. She was like that, I just am so embarrassed for, for like my colleagues, for the students that are here. But no, none, you know, She introduced me to the word equity. I had no idea of that word equity and what it meant. I only knew about equality. And I knew that equality was something that it wasn't, it didn't fit what was needed. Like it wasn't the right word to what we needed. And I was just like, we can't be equal because John has $10 and I have $2. And if I get $10, John gets another 10, then he has $20 and I have $12. Like there's still something wrong with this
0: yeah yeah and that professor she had a profound impact on you and from there like you were looking to apply to different graduate programs and you were having some difficulties finding the the right one
1: it was one of those like um, alternative programs so it was it was like you can get a master's for free because in New York City you need to have a master's to be a teacher okay so I didn't want to pay for my master's so I was like that this program is going to be great so I applied and I I thought i did an amazing job and then other kids got the fellowship and i did it and i was well for whatever reason it derailed me for two years and i went into something else um, another career and you know i it's a pattern that i've noticed in the past that and when i was younger i'm now 35 that when i had these huge like life blows like it would derail me for a while and it's just it just as soon as I hit, like, maybe in late 20s is when I started to be more resilient and, like, f- come back a little faster. And, and, like, it takes time. and I tell my students all the time. Like, when I tell them the story that I was derailed for two years, they're like, no way, not Mr. Payton. Like, how could you, like, be floating? I mean, I was, I you know, floating for me was having a job, taking care of myself, but it wasn't a passion. It was just, right, right. that's not who you are. I'm like... I wasn't always this resilient. I wasn't I, I didn't have the right resiliency to like bounce back as fast as I wanted to. It was just kind of like
0: the slump. And how did you develop your resiliency skill? And how did you bounce back from, you know, from that situation?
1: Well, I was at a job that I did not like and it was working in cap like the most capitalistic thing that you could work in. It was working for a hedge fund and I was so livid and it reminded me of like the gross entitlement of all these people now that have money and they want you to do, there was a biotech firm. All these people that have money that want you to invest in these areas and they feel like once they invest $1,000, or no, excuse me, not even $1,000, invest $10,000, $100,000, they're like, oh, they own you and like you're like having to do all these things. And I kept thinking about the kids and I kept thinking about all of that. And then my nephew who was in high school, all of a sudden, Got suspended and when i asked why he got suspended they're like oh because he was they had insubordination and i went to the school with my sister and i said what does that mean i knew what it mean but like what does it mean to be suspended for insubordination they're like oh we told him to get up and to go to the detention room and he didn't want to he said he wanted to stay and continue to learn that he would be quiet and because he kept resisting to not leave they suspended him And my nephew was really, really upset. Then he got suspended again because we already know the data that once you're suspended once, you have a higher chance of being suspended again. Um, and this was a very large school in Manhattan. Okay. And once at the time he got suspended twice, I knew that this problem did not obviously go away. And it was never going to go away. And I started remembering it. So literally, I'm going to tell you what I did. I purposely got fired from my job to collect unemployment i applied to fordham university knowing that i was at the end of the application round and i knew that i would have to pay for most of that school i applied and i did everything within a month and i was out of there i was just like and that was so un- that was not like me i would never in a million years would ever let anybody fire me but i was like i need to get fired so that I can get so that i can collect my unemployment so that i can support myself I went to go live with my sister. I was on her couch. I did everything. I was like, you know, I, I it was that much of a sacrifice. And I'm very open about my, with this, with my students. I said, I I got SNAP benefits. I slept on my sister's couch. I got into my Fordham program. I decided to do it full time. Cause I was like, I am not dragging this program out for three years to get my masters. I said, I'm going to do this in a year with student teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, So I was real broke, a hella broke on my sister's couch, getting a master's from a very good school. And as soon as I finished my degree, my mentor teacher was like, I have a phenomenal program for you. I said, what? She's like, you are so good with the young men at the school. This was a co-ed school that my last student teaching. She was like, Mm -hmm. you're just so good with them. Like, she was like, not for nothing. She was like, Even the kids, she's like, You're not the most masculine guy, but like even the basketball kids are talking to you. Like everyone is talking to you. Like you are every you're like an open person. Like everybody likes talking to you. She was like, You either should be a counselor or you should be a teacher at this all-boys school. I'm like, I'm not going back to school to get another master's. But I was like, I'll try this school out. And it was Eagle Academy for young men. Okay. Which is where you are now. That's where I am now. So I've been there for nine years. And she did a re- that was the that's one of the best recommendations. Like people recommend so many things for me to do and I take and I like bite, but like that was the best thing that anybody has ever recommended. She was like, you should apply to this program. I'm not saying you're gonna be terrible at co ed schools, but like this all boys school, you're gonna do well there. You're gonna do really, really well there. You're gonna you're gonna thrive. I know it. Miss English, she was the West Indian. I don't want to say West Indian, she would identify herself as West Indian, but she was from Jamaica. She was like, you're going to be good with young men. You you need to go there. They need you. That, that's how she said it. I mean, I don't feel like, I don't feel like, you know, they need me, but that's how she stated. She's like, they need you. You need to go there. She was like, I have other schools that you can go to, but the school's in Brooklyn. It's, it's going to be a commute for you, but you got to go.
0: Yeah. It sounds like she saw something in you and that recommendation really put you on this trajectory where you've been able to do some phenomenal work where you currently are and I love to hear within that nine year time frame um, what you're doing with the school and also I gotta shout out the the shirt shout out uh, some of the swag I love to hear about the work that you've been doing at your current school and then how that transitioned into uh, the black boys do Broadway black boys do Broadway
1: so let me tell you that I was so fed up with everything that I came to this school hitting the ground running. Like my first course that I taught was human rights through literature. And like, I didn't care. I was like, I don't care if you have a curricula, this is what I'm teaching. So a few things that I implemented in that school that I'm currently working at now is we completely shifted the whole school where we're doing only culturally responsive literature. So we we ask the question, how do we invite white people into literature instead of the other way around? Because we want to make sure that we are bringing in black and brown authors and black and brown protagonists and not just the protagonists that are gun violence and murder and stuff like that. How do we reimagine what literature looks like? Right. How do we bring in Afrofuturism and, and science fiction and, and all of these wonderful things that make literature rich? It's not just. These negative stories that make money and, and and still keep us in this like trope of like police brutality, which that's the reality. But it's not all that we're writing. It's not that's all right. that exists. And there are people who are thriving in our communities. I mean, everyone's affected by race and racism. But within that, there are people that are doing phenomenal work. And the kids need to read about that. They need to feel that power, the power of enlightening them and really getting as close to them as they can through that. So I think that was the first step that I wanted to work with the school is like I learned everything about CRE before it was cute, before it was fancy. And I just really was like, what do y'all want to read? That was really my question. It was like, what do y'all want to read?
0: And to those who might not be familiar, CRE is culturally relevant education. Education.
1: Right. I say it like that because then it's like CRT, right? Yeah. And then there's there's a lot of sustaining pedagogy. Yeah. So I just say Cree, C-R-E, because it's just like all of those things. I focused on culturally sustaining practices, which, again, is just about how do we continue to to not only think about literature um, or what we're reading, but about how we are thinking about literacy. and What does that mean? Like, everyone is, is literate. And I think about, you know, my grandparents from the South who could not read, but they were literate. You know right. what I mean? Like, they still lived their daily lives. So when people say, oh, you know... All these people in the South and stuff where a lot of my family's from, they were illiterate and stuff. I'm like, they were literate to live their lives. And they, were mm-hmm. not, they might have not been traditionally literate in how we think of reading and writing, which is rooted in whiteness and white supremacy, that everything has to be the written word. But grandma and grandpa got through life. They did th- through song, music, conversation. their different uh, languages that they use, dialects that they may have had. Literacy is about the word and the world, and we, ha- we can't forget those two things, the word and the world. The word is your more traditional way of looking at literacy, but the world is how we engage, how we talk, how we are Twittering, how we are Snapchatting, right? texting each other. We can't forget about the way our students are literate. right? We have linguistic geniuses in our classroom, and we always, as a society, we try to make them only speak one way or write one way. And African-American language is a whole language. It's not a dialect, right? It's not slang. It has its own systems of grammar. So I think like, that was one big project. The second project was developing a writing center at my school. It was the first writing center that we had. So we got our equipped, fully equipped, dipped, draped, uh, Mac lab and we created a writing center and created writing tutors. That was my second big project that I did at the school. The third project was called the identity project, which basically all the students had to reflect on their identity. And then they had to do, it was like a symposium of identity. And they had to, however they wanted to explore that, whether it was through lyrics, rap, comics, however they wanted to, it was a display of their identity, how they wanted to portray their identity for the world to see. So that was the third big project. And then the fourth one is the Black Boys Do Broadway. And Black Boys Do Broadway is something that I've been doing for about five years. And I, and I made a commitment to myself that students need to see at least two shows a year. Then I said, students need to see three shows a year. And now I'm at, students need to see five shows a year. And it's not just, uh, you know, not just Broadway, it has to be off Broadway, we try to get them to the Mets because we want them to, like, you know, experience them. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, it might be, you might not like it, but sometimes you're going to have to go to the ballet. You're going to have to go to the opera. You know, you're going to have to wear your suit. You're going to have to do all of these things. So it's it's fun. It's 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 a lot of fun to see them like, you know, they're these handsome men. Like, uh, you know, they have their suit and they're, like, trying to be all, you know, looking around. And they're just like, is this right, Mr. P? Am I doing it? I'm like, you're fine you're fine don't worry about it they're like trying to just like adapt and you know we saw porgy and best for example which was a three-hour production can you imagine wow Wow. 17 year old sitting for a three-hour show but it was phenomenal and they actually you know they gave it a seven out of ten and i don't think that's bad for a young person uh watching you know all black people doing opera first of all they didn't even know black people did opera crazy they were like what black people do opera i'm like mm-hmm. yeah black people do opera black people do everything mm-hmm. um but you have to have access to it how many people can actually see porgy and Bess? Mm. right that's the issue right the tickets are two hundred dollars to see porgy and Bess, but it has black people in it so how black people are going to see consume their own art when they can't afford to consume their
0: own art. One of the things that I always wanted for our young people was just to get the opportunity to have access to get the chance to to see especially being in these major cities like a DC or a New York. Like there's amazing things that's happening right in your backyard that's bigger than war 8, that's bigger than, you know, Brownsville. Like you got to get out and actually see it. So exposure is is really big. Uh, so uh, I'm interested to hear, like, what would you say has been, like, the pivotal moment or one of the most exciting moments for, for your young boys? I think, I mean, the best thing, I mean, one of the best things in
1: general is to, like, show an 80, have an $80 ticket and, like, have them go for free. That's that's the first excitement. It's like, you really seeing this for free, like, it, like, for real. So that's always exciting. And believe it or not, these young men get so excited when people donate when people make anything accessible to them. Like they're just like, Yeah, let's go. We're so excited. Like, wow, really? We only gotta go for five dollars, Mr. Payton. You for real? Now nah, you not for real. Let me see the price of the ticket. I show them the ticket. So that that always is thrilling because they really, really love the donations. They really love when people support them, especially when it's strangers. But I think aha moments are when students are like become critics of what they're consuming they're like, Mr. Payton, where's the inciting action? Like, what is going on? Like, it's missing something. It's like the play, like we saw a play. I won't put it out on blast because it's struggling a little bit, but we did see a play recently and my students were like, but what was the purpose of act one? And I was like, I'm struggling with that too. Because it's not just that, like, we just don't see plays. So the students have to write their own, they become critics and they have to write their, they have to do their own write-up. The write-up could be an actual write-up or they can do like their little, um, they can do like a video. A few years ago, a group of students decided to do kind of like a podcast situation where they were doing like the interviewing of like the characters on the the, on, that was at the play. And like, they were asking them questions like, so how is it like, you know, X, Y, Z, so like that was a very exciting class. They were very, they took things a little different. This class that I have now, they, they are really into writing. They're writers, so like they're like, they're excited. They're like writing notes. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just writing his he's writing his little notes on the show. He was like, I'm noticing that the, I'm noticing that this acting is blah, 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 blah. I'm just like, okay, all right, well, you're not just swepting anybody, he's taking your little notes. Honestly, I don't have a moment. I think all of it is, I think all of it is great. I think all of it is Every year we do fundraising. This year we decided to put it on GoFundMe. Normally it's just kind of like this. Hey everybody, I'm taking my kids to Broadway and donate and then everybody sends me a bunch of money and but I'm like I'll do something a little different this year so that they can share if they wanted to, but we didn't have time to do that because you know, we went you know, we signed up. It was 300 then 800 then Twenty five hundred, and then you know, on the GoFundMe, we got to thirty five hundred. But in total, with other outside donations, we're at forty six hundred dollars. Wow! Congratulations. I think I think it's good because then now the now the part is like the haggling. You know, we just bought some shows, like haggling and like getting the tickets lower, and like you say, this is for students for forty. But can you give it to me for thirty? And so that's also fun too. Um, they don't have to do that, but the haggling is is fun. But why do we have to haggle for black kids to go see shows? Like shows should be free. I think that for kids, if you are a public school student, title one school, like mm-hmm. school shows should be hundred percent free, like hands down. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, all these shows are not sold out every night. They're not. Yeah.
0: But I think the great thing is that you notice the need and you're given exposure, but you're also making it real world. You're making it practical. You're giving these boys an experience that I think will live with them for for the rest of their lives. And you're connecting it back to literacy, so that's that's very exciting, man. And you know, I I support what you what you're doing, man. Yeah, you're blessing their lives, and so bringing it to you personally, like I, I know it seems that you've had a number of different ventures. You got the podcast, like you have big ideas, and so. I saw on social media that you recently launched or are in the process of launching a new business venture, We Free Us. Can you break that down and, and just kind of explain a little bit about what that is, the thinking behind it? Right. So I'm actually still working on this now, right? Like I was literally, we had,
1: I was in D.C. last week and I was like retreating it with a, with a real close friend of mine. And the gist of it is We Free Us is an education collaborative program organization where we are on freeing ourselves like i think that the most important thing there's no other simpler way to say it than that everything that we want to do in our organization that we're that we're trying to bring out is how do we free ourselves like we spend so much time and effort trying to convert people to be on our side and i want to work with those people but i really want to work with the people that get it and like that can like be the spores in the and in the in the environment and like bring all of that because as we think about we think about our history we were not passive people
0: mm-hmm.
1: everything that we did was about resistance
0: resistance I was just it's about to say it's, resistance it's,
1: it's resistance and, and and even to and this is project but even to throwing yourself off a ship is part it could be seen as resistance right even being in a field even. Doing your tra- the traditional of the riots uh, and, and, and going and, and, and rebelling against the, all of that was resistance, right? Purposely not wanting to have more children, resistance. There's always a negative, there's always a positive when we see a negative, and that's how I see it. So I think the We Free Us is working with talented folks from various different backgrounds and industries. We are a care centered organization, so I'm really big into mental health. I'm really big into yoga, meditation. I'm, a restorative, I'm becoming a restorative justice practitioner, mindfulness practitioner. I will be a yoga certified instructor in about two months. So everything that we do will be focusing on how do we unlearn, learn, and heal. All of those things are really important. Healing is really important. I think that when you said that your podcast is about healing centered, I thought that I wish that I would be on this Three months later, because I would have a more refined answer for you in terms of what Refree us is. But in the past, it's it's looked at what it has been. What it has been in the past is we take a cohort of teachers, for example, and not only do we give them. uh, We provide them a very immersive experience of culturally relevant pedagogy, but we also give them self-healing and healing practices that they can use with themselves and with the classroom. So you'll learn about how to do literacy across the curricula in a more culturally responsive way, but also how does that look like when you're healing, right? How do you bring meditation into your practice? How do you bring in yoga, stretching? All of those things are important. How do you bring uh, rehabilitative practices into what you're doing, right? Why are we so punitive when we're doing rubrics, for example? Rubrics are some of the most oppressive, punitive things that we have as tools in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. because we don't really re-examine how rubrics work mm-hmm. like it's always it's always centered around are you a four are you a three are you a two and people are not numbers mm-hmm. people are constantly growing and developing and why do we evaluate people as they're learning right we evaluate them in the middle of their learning we stop them and we say you're a three mm-hmm. we stop them and you say you're a two we're constantly stopping children from learning to tell them what they are number wise and then expect them to, like, continue to grow. So we, long story short, we hope to be an organization that centers healing with the culturally responsiveness, the restorative that we want for our communities. And the way that we do that is with our own community, our own people that get it, people that are co-conspirators. And I'll leave it like that. People that are co-conspirators that are really down for the work.
0: And they're the router dies. They're going to do it. They, they yeah. get it. Yeah. I love that. And what really stands out to me about that is when you were talking about resistance. And that's in our DNA and who we are. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I look at healing for us as a form of resistance. Like we have to be able to take back like our own wellness and mental health and our peace and we can't leave it up to chance to anyone else, uh, and we have to prioritize it. And I also believe that it's a collective feeling that has to take place, and there's also an individual sense of feeling that we have to take ownership of as well. Um, so I, I love uh, what you're doing. So in three months, we're gonna have to bring you back on to get an update and see the difference that, that you all are making.
1: I hope so, too, because I was just like, wait a minute, that was all over the place. But I was just like, you know, as you know, with building anything, you you you're you know, you are also an entrepreneur.
0: Like sometimes you just have to put it out there. Right. And you have an idea, you have a concept and it might not be fully actualized yet, but you put it out to the world. Not too long ago, I tweeted about that. And so many people are paralyzed by their thinking their beliefs, the what ifs. What if this doesn't work out? What if it goes wrong? It's like, no, just do it. Sometimes the biggest barrier is your own thinking. You got to get out your head and just do it and take action because that that just might be the the push that you need. When you put it out there, you might find resources, connects, like-minded people. Sometimes you you just got to take action and, and put that out into the world. And so I I love that focus. And one of the things that I I really wanted you to kind of share, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but from your own personal experiences, from your work, from your future endeavors, like what do you think the value of these healing centered practices and really these healing centered conversations, like what are they to you? Like what's the value of them? I think
1: that the more we invest in ourselves, the more that we invest in healing, the, I think the better we're just gonna be as a people. I think that there's so much, and, and you know this as a psychologist, right? Psychologist. Yeah, um, absolutely, there's, absolutely. There's so much trauma that we're carrying. And I think that having conversations is part of the healing process. And I, and I know that from working with young men, you know, people who they say, oh, they don't have emotions, that they're taught to, like, not express themselves. And being in an environment where I've literally is one of, it's, it's part of the healing. Like, I think that I've been, even though, even though I'm not a counselor, a psychologist, I feel like I've been in this space. And I think we're all in this space of healing because every time a teacher creates an environment where kids can be themselves, that they can have conversations, that they can take risk um, yes, about yes. what they're saying. I think that that's all part of the healing process and I think that, yeah, we can name it, we can add all this extra funding and stuff like that, but I think the hardest part is creating that environment. Like yeah. you creating this space. You've created a space, a healing center space where people can have conversations that mean something. People just want to be valued. People want to be heard and I think that that's part of human nature. We want We can talk about ourselves forever. We want to be heard, we want to be loved. And I think that we have to have unconditional love for everyone that touches us. I know that that comes from a feminist framework, you know, bell hooks, Audre Lorde. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. I think that we have to get out of, especially as men, we have to get out of the patriarchy way of running things and how things should be or how we monetize things or how we how we just have to just keep everything so organized and stuff. But I think that it it really boils down to real love, (coughs) authentic love for each other.
0: So I got to ask you though, right? Especially working with, you know, boys. Do you feel that traditionally, like the young boys have been taught or conditioned that showing love is a weakness or exhibiting certain types of emotions are there's more feminine emotions or more masculine emotions and you can't show certain emotions or you can't cry. Like, do you think that's part of it? I
1: think as an educator, I've seen that regularly, like literally on a daily basis where you have kids coming in thinking they can't do certain things because they're young men. We're lucky to get this, our kids starting in sixth grade and they're, most of them are from six to 12. But we have so many things working against us. We have society, we have Caribbean immigrants that might have a more traditional way of looking at certain things. We have what society tells boys to be, how they should be. I think that sometimes they might see being caring, loving, hugging, all of that stuff as being sometimes feminine. I think the reason why that I've been successful is because I am a little more feminine and that sometimes teach, and sometimes they might see me as um, a sister, even though I'm male, and I'm all of those things as a as a as a I consider myself a man, but I think all of the the ability to listen to care to hug to nurture all of those things are feminine qualities, and I think that I've had some of the jockeyest guys ball down and become like mm. and that that's that's not what I want, but I've had experiences where other men could not get to these other young men because their approach is like suck it up like you don't need to do that you're a big dude you're six eight why are you crying for right right literally like had like a seven foot kid years ago like bawling because something traumatic happened to him and i was like you don't have to speak right now just relax like if you need to cry you need to cry like there is no perfect time to cry you just let it all out and cry and i think that I think that is challenging. I think that it's still challenging for young men to be young men. I think it's hard for young men to tell other young men that they love them without it being homophobic. I think that we still have a long way to go. I, hell, I think adults have a hard time. I think that when was the last time that you had a non-family member, male, tell you that they love you? That, that's not romantic. They're just like, yo, bro, I love you. It's not as often as someone in your family may be. And even still, there might still be some stigma.
0: Yeah, and w- what's interesting is, especially for I'll use like my my line Brothers uh, as an example. Like we have a group there, and whenever we talk, whenever we you know meet up in person, even though that's rare, like we always try to say that. And whether it's through certain spaces that we share together, or just understanding the the need for for mental health, for well being, for connection. With each other, like we, we try to make it a priority to like say those things. And you know, we weren't like taught explicitly to like say that, yo, bro, like I love you, or like, bro, like if you need anything, like I'm here for you to like cry with one another. Like you have to, and earlier you mentioned unlearning, like there's a lot, especially as black men, that we have to unlearn so that we can heal. And so, as you're saying that. You're creating these spaces for for your young men. Like that's that's powerful to where they can start learning those things so that by the time they get to college and into adulthood, like you have these these individuals who are healing centered in everything that they do. Like, man, that's the resistance that that I'm talking about, that I'm looking for. So man, shout out to the to the work that you're doing. As we bring this thing to a close, man, how can people get in touch with you or, or follow you on social media? I try to keep things very simple so you
1: can just follow me on Twitter at MadisonPayton2. Everything there is, is there. Is. I, I'm always like trash. T- I'm either trash talking or sharing something important. It's kind of, you get a little bit of everything. I, it's unfiltered, but you can find me at Madison Payton
0: 2 Look, the name of this podcast is going to be Unfiltered with Madison Payton. I love Unfiltered. that. <laughs> you know, I I, I expose myself more
1: than I have in a while. So thank you for allowing me to to be in this space. I haven't talked about myself in a while. So thank you for and sharing my work as well. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to do this, to share this space with you and to learn more about you and your work. And I really love this Healing Center approach. I am in awe of educators and especially the counselors and just like the thankless work that many of y'all do like the psychologists the psychiatrists there's not a dollar sign that could fully give y'all what y'all deserve and y'all just been doing it and just like every day caring for everybody else and then of course yourself it's Um, tough it's it's definitely tough so my hat's off to you and all of that work and i and i'm excited to see where this sel netflix is going i'm excited to see you know i want to see you everywhere so hopefully we get to see you everywhere and you know i'm like i know that dude i remember (laughs) when he was so dc based but look at that he's like everywhere now everybody's so growth
0: growth that's that's what it's about and you know with this podcast i wanted to I wanted to do that with the guests who I bring on. I wanted to extend to, you know, the listeners that we're creating this space to where people can have these type of conversations and feel comfortable doing it so that we can we can make a difference in whatever spaces that we occupy. And So we definitely going to keep this conversation going. Much appreciated. So uh, again, thanks for this healing center conversation. Let's keep healing. This was episode five of the Healing Center Conversations podcast. Be sure to follow at Healing Convo Pod across all social media platforms. Help us grow by liking, sharing, commenting, and leaving a review. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the Healing Center Conversations podcast. Take care, y'all.